on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, disruptions to the supply of fresh fruit and vegetables set to continue. Not to sound alarmist, but... Um... You know, we're a long way from getting anything in the back of a truck yet. It's only the second week of November. We've got to get through the next 50 to 60 days relatively smoothly. Um, and, we, you know, of course, you don't know what's what weather's coming. And the farmer back doing what he loves despite a serious accident. The day I could walk, I was involved with the farm with Dad and my grandfather. Um, and, yeah, just was determined to come back after my accident to do some sort of farming and I just decided I was going to start a stud. Yeah, the story of a farmer with a disability running a stud and problems with the supply of fresh produce to supermarkets looks likely to continue those stories coming up. G'day Tony with you on this wet Monday. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage to see what's in store for the week ahead. Also today, lobster fish are staring at another season of low returns for their catch. We'll talk to one of those fishers coming up for you shortly. And you too can be part of the program via the text line 0438 922 is that number, 0438 922 First up today, Australians are lucky to enjoy a never-ending summer of fruit and vegetable supply because there's always a ripening season somewhere in this huge country. But the strain on farmers from a rolling sequence of natural disasters is evident on the supermarket shelves with apologies for the lack of supply in fresh and frozen shelves. Chair of the Tasmanian Vegetable Council, farmer Nathan Richardson, says disruptions to supplies and price hikes are likely to continue. Right from Queensland to Tasmania, it's uh, in most growing regions have had been affected um, with some weather event and uh, depending on when it strikes, it's either really bad, delays in, in northern Australia harvesting and and uh, we've had crop losses. Um, you know, we've we've lost critical planting windows through every major growing region in Australia uh, in the last few months, and you can't make up, you can't make that up. The four we have four seasons, and uh, you know you can't go back in time and plant our seed. It doesn't work. What sort of uh, produce are you talking about there across the regions? You, you name it, basic, basically everything, uh, leafy greens, uh, all your processing vegetables, um, above and below ground crops, every, everything has been affected. And then you throw in the, the tightening labour market and, um, you know, all those issues. So it's going to be hard to guarantee those at the normal windows of harvest, normal harvest windows? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so particularly here in Tasmania, we... we basically had the whole month of October where there was no crops planted and uh, that that also limits your processing capacity and what that can also do is is it puts pressure on other crops that are grown that have to get through that factory as well so everything matures at different times but when we, when we have adverse weather events that that can bring on maturity and so while you're waiting for one crop, the next crop's racing in because it's had better conditions. And uh, it, it could be a double whammy here in Tasmania for, for rain-affected crops clashing with, with later sown crops that, are, that have, could uh, hypothetically bloom in, in the later season. 
What sort of crops do you think could end up being at the factory at the same time? Different plantings of peas uh, and they could clash with uh, broccoli uh, and beans. So those, those are the three major crops that, that could clash uh, and particularly different varieties of, of each of those uh, cultivars. So not to sound alarmist, but... Um, you know, we're a long way from getting anything in the back of a truck yet. It's only the second week of November. We've got to get through the next 50 to 60 days relatively smoothly. Um, and, we, you know, of course, you don't know what's what weather's coming, but we just we really need good conditions now. Really do. It's really important. There's a lot going on here. The wet La Nina year, droughts in Europe and parts of the US, Ukraine, war-driven price rises in fuel and fertilisers, and the shortage of immigrant workers. The combination of everything is likely to impact supplies and prices well into 2023. Farmer Nathan Richardson again. I'd say to the consumer about prices, it's... uh definitely not the case where it all goes back to the producer. Uh, there's a lot of other links in the supply chain um, that have to that have to get some relief from uh, high wages, uh, higher fuel costs, higher insurance, running costs for, for, for vehicles and, and equipment, uh, packing sheds. Um, but I'd say uh, as an industry to the consumer, we're, we're replying really good, nutritious, affordable food. So would you say ride over any price hikes? I, I honestly don't think consumers in Australia are going to have a choice. They're going to have to buy local because there won't be the influx of overseas goods coming into Australia like that we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years. So we've been uh, very fortunate to have uh, an alternative, but uh, very quickly those alternatives uh, could be uh, in tight supply as well. So, you know, if we want to look after each other, look after each other's business, families, jobs, economies, our way of life. It's it's really important that we do just keep picking up Australian-grown uh, goods, whether it's uh, food or, or manufactured goods, clothing or or anything. It's, it's really, really important at the moment. Shoppers are watching closely. You look around and everyone's looking. Everyone's sizing up what they've got to buy. You know, it's just not grab and walk off with your trolley full. Everyone is really got a list, got a calculator. You never saw that before. Trying to be selective and get things that are in season, obviously, so the price isn't too high. But with the current conditions, with the floods, etc., then prices are escalating quite rapidly. A couple of shoppers from Hobart chatting there to Fiona Breen about fruit and veggie prices. And we also heard from the chair of the Tasmanian Vegetable Council, farmer Nathan Richardson. In a statement, frozen vegetable processor Simplot says it's anticipating there might be some impacts due to crop availability. However, it's still evaluating the effects of the recent rains. Simplot acknowledges that culminating factors will likely increase demand for frozen produce, which may lead to consumers seeing fewer frozen vegetables in the freezer area. And McCain's has said, well, it's been a challenging time for potato growers, given it's been one of the wettest spring seasons on record. It doesn't anticipate that recent rainfall across Tasmania will affect their ability to supply customers in the immediate future. Workers in Victoria's timber industry say they were dealt a blow on Friday with their ability to operate curtail by a Supreme Court verdict. 
Justice Melinda Richards handed down orders in cases involving environmental groups and Vic Forests. They restrict the forests from logging in areas where greater gliders have been detected and also impose buffer areas around the gliders. Lawyers representing environmental groups in the case say there is still room for logging to continue under the new restrictions. However, contractors like Chris Stafford, who's operated in Gippsland Central Highland for two decades, says it will affect the viability of their business. Uh, well, yes, yeah, put our whole industry in limbo big time. We're um, not sure how we're going to go, whether we'll be able to operate under these new rulings or um, what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's a major blow to the industry. The, the decisions this judge has made, whether they're right or wrong, we're not sure. But um, we've just got to wait to see what happens and see the fallout of it with Vic Forest and the government. Yeah, There's potential that that ruling could be as much as 40% uh, of uh, the... Sorry, 40% of the area will be what will be available to be, to be logged, 60% protected. Is that a viable scenario for you moving forward, do you think, given uh, what you know about your work? I think any logging's viable. Yeah, it's a sustainable industry, so um, you would hope Vic Forest will be able to find a way around it and, yeah, keep supplying timber to the communities, the local mills, and, um, yeah, keep us working. You've just come out of a meeting uh, with a whole range of people from within the industry. Can you give us a sense of what the feeling was, what was discussed at all? Oh, everyone's very anxious about it and, um, yeah, we just want a bit of direction. So, yeah, everyone's pretty anxious. Uh, this case uh, is related to uh, issues around surveillance of greater gliders. We know that recently they've been added, added to the endangered list here in Victoria. Can you talk us through a bit about that process of surveillance? Are there certain conditions or elements of that process that make it particularly difficult to reach the standard that's required? Uh, I'm not right across what the standard is, but I know there's a lot of rules and regulations over the um, surveying and stuff that DALP do and then Big Forest do. I think it's pretty heavily regulated now. Um, And if, yeah, a judge was to rule for it to be more you know, more rigorous or whatever. I don't think there's any need for it myself, but yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your individual operation, where, where you're based and, and what your uh, logging looks like? Uh, yeah, I work so the central highlands, which is all north of New G, uh, around that area. So I work in mixed species and ash coops. Um, I've got a contract for 10 months a year with Vic Forest, employ about 12 people. And um, yeah, we supply... APM and all the local mills um, with timber. Yeah. Have you been in conversations internally within your own, uh, I suppose, your own, with your own staff about what's been happening over the last couple of days? Is it affecting things in the short term? Oh, definitely. Holding on to staff and that through these times is pretty hard because of the uncertainty of it and stuff. So um, you just try and keep them informed and let them know the info as it comes through. That's logging contractor Chris Stafford speaking there with Oliver Lees after a meeting in Taralgon on Friday. Carly Porteous, the general manager of the Australian Forest Contractors Association, was also at that meeting. She says the government should bring forward financial assistance for contractors who will now have to exit the industry. Well, what came out of the meeting was frustration, uh, anger and, um, and concern, especially mental health concern for these forest contractors and what their future looks like because right now it's extraordinarily uncertain. 
Uh, we know that there will be a decision handed down at 4pm today. We know that decision is going to impact our, our members in a very, very negative way, not just our members but all forest contractors and flow-on businesses in these small regions across Victoria. Um, and we know that there's really not a bright future with this current Labor government. With this decision looming, we obviously don't know now exactly what will be happening. Is part of your role to f figure out some sort of contingency plan for the worst case scenario? The, the contingency plan probably exists in the current uh, Victorian forestry plan, which is something that we certainly do not endorse. Uh, we don't endorse the closure of this industry, but you know there are packages in there that we can and we will be lobbying for the departments and the governments to bring those packages forward to give these families and these businesses a whole, a whole lot of financial relief because right now uh, we do know that their houses are riding on uh, the, the equipment that they have financed and there's not too many businesses that are in that sort of vulnerable state. So potentially more money from Vic Forest, say, to, to give a chip in for these, for these workers out in East Gippsland? Well, certainly more money from the Labor government uh, for these businesses in, in East Gippsland. The, um, the VFP and certainly the, the budget that was put forward um, by the Minister back in December 2021 is really insufficient uh, to compensate these businesses for the losses that they're going to uh, endure over the next few months. So prior to the decision on uh, Friday last week, there were already eight Vic uh, Forest contractors that were stood down. We now have an additional 11 contractors that are stood down, but the uncertainty goes across all of the contractors in that particular re region. Uh, and I really implored the government to really consider uh, not just the Greater Glido in a lot of their decisions, but your you're talking about communities, mental health of men and women in this industry, and those that are fifth, fourth, third generation, um, they, you know, they really are proud of what they do. So I really implore the government to consider all these things and in, in how they might respond to these sorts of uh, litigation cases in That's the future. Carly Porteous from the Australian Forest Contractors Association speaking with Oliver Leaves after the justice decision handed down orders in cases involving environmental groups and Vic Forests and the ability of forest workers to operate was curtailed, 40% of their forests now instead of the 100%. Coming up, we shall uh, talk to a lobster fisher who's looking at the new season, but not keenly. It's the stuff of a new Hollywood blockbuster. John O'Hara. For me, Helen Shield. Cyber security agency releases code-imprinted coin only to have their intelligence cracked by a Tasmanian team nearly hours after. We were blown away by the news. It has been revealed that there's a fifth level of encryption on the coin. There's still that challenge out there, correct? It's top secret information, John. Your Afternoon with John O'Hara from Half Past One Weekdays on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. That text line number. Professional rock lobster fishers will be out on the water tomorrow for the opening of the commercial fishing season, but some are nervous following a tough three years. Cray fishing is in Jason Hart's blood as a third-generation cray fisherman down at Strawn on the West Coast. Normally, he's looking forward to the season opening, but a couple of years of immense financial strain have been taking some of the joy out of the job. Uh, a bit lost this year, really, compared to other years. You know, normally I'm excited and bandied out there, 
over the last three years? Obviously, COVID must have had an impact. It has. You know, it's not even so much not selling it to China, just the fluctuation, you know, beach price. You know, in the wintertime, my last trip, I think we got $35 in July. I mean, it's decent July, and it was not even break even. So that's all it stayed at after that. So we just didn't go. I've been fish farming on the side for the last two years. I've been very lucky there. They've had me and looked after me, and that's what's getting the bloody roof over our head, really, more fish farming than crane. Yeah, right. So the craze just not paid off at all? Nah, not at all. Not Especially what, you know, the people you lease the quota off, you know, they're wanting $25 and you're only getting 35 It costs bloody 25 to run a boat, so you're going backwards big time. And what are the beach prices looking like this year? Uh, I was talking to my buyer yesterday, saying around 40 for the first couple of days until a few fish come in and She'll probably drop back to 35 up until Christmas. So nothing exciting at all. A little bit better, but really not much. Not much, no. Even 40, you know, you lease a quota, which most people do. I'm lucky with folk I work for and with, and he owns a fair bit, so we're lucky there. But bloody folks that lease all their quota must be fine at hard. Jason, what, what keeps you going? It sounds like it's just been tough. The love of the fishing, I suppose. Mm. You know, you out there, the thrill of the hunt, as you call it. Find out some other little crayfish. I try to. <laughs> I do. <laughs> they can be pretty wily. Yeah, it depends on the weather and the time of year and everything, but the crays are looking pretty good this year. Talking to amateur fishermen, the amateur season's already open, they're looking pretty good by the sounds of it. So, as far as um, supplementing your income again this year, I mean, Costs in general have gone up so much, and diesel uh, is one of those. Will you be fishing, doing other fishing again this year? Um, yeah, I'll probably be fish farming a lot again this summer, I reckon. Um, just to keep things topped up, you know, price of fuel and bait gone through the roof, obviously, and adds a lot extra onto it. A standard week trip for about 3,000 litres of fuel, so when you're looking there, nearly $8,000 now for a week. About, oh, probably four. $4,000 in bait for the week, a bit more. She adds up insurances and everything else and port fees for the boat, some stuff in Sean, it all goes on top of it. And do you, I mean, I heard the um, the passion in your voice before when you were talking about your love for fishing. It must be hard to, this year you said you felt a bit lost and like the enjoyments come out of it. That must be a real, a kick for you. Yeah, it is a big kick. You know, talking to a lot of fishermen, you know, the last couple of years, just the unknown all the time. You know, if we could go to sea and get, you know, knew we were going to come home and get $50, well, it wouldn't be so bad. But when you go to sea and it's a reasonable price and you come home four or five days later and, or, you know, your fish pie rings while you're out there and it's up to 30 or 35, it's just, you know, the biggest kick in the guts ever. 
just lost bloody 15 grand like that. You know, that pays for your trip. And then you're going into the bloody red real quick. I can see why you're feeling um, not thrilled about the season opening. No, 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 it's a hard one. I'll mm. probably go and do a quick trip now and get money back in the bank and save the rest of our boat until Christmas, I reckon, and hopefully get a bit of price then. Sell something Bernie again like we did a couple of years ago, or, you know, cook them and sell them up there or give it a little bit extra for them or something. Not last Christmas, Christmas before we took the fuel and took them to Bernie TJM at Philly there and sold them and, you know, that helped out a lot. It's bloody unreal the amount of people turned up on, actually. Oh, I was going to ask, actually. I, I bet a lot of Tasmanians hadn't tasted crayfish in a while and would have been pretty excited. Yeah, they were. The line-up was huge because we traffic jam and everything there in the main drag of Philly. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to hard say. to do, to be fair. <laughs> no, it's not. But, yeah, we weren't meant to be there till 10 o'clock and people line up 8 o'clock that morning. Wow. Is that something you'd do again? Yeah. I reckon we'll probably lean towards that before Christmas again. As straw and cray fisherman Jason Hart telling reporter Meg Powell he's feeling a bit lost ahead of the commercial rock lobster season, which does open tomorrow for local fishers. Well, Stuart Stoudy is like any other livestock producer. He's out every day keeping an eye on the sheep, checking fences, organising the workforce and attending to the never-ending bookwork. But instead of from the seat of his ute, Stuart runs his operation from a wheelchair. Karen Hunt caught up with him in the shearing shed where Stuart was, as usual, right in the thick of it. So we've weaned the lambs at about five months old and we are weighing them to get their weaning weight and then in about six weeks' time we'll bring them back in and do their, their muscle depth and weigh them again. How long have you been involved in this stud? My stud, which is Riddick White Suffix, has been going since 2015. Um, prior to that, I was in a partnership with my best friend for roughly four years to get started and then we split which was always on the cards and since then he's sort of a stud mentor for me so we still talk on a weekly basis. Did you always want to be a farmer even before your accident? Yeah so I would be fourth generation on the farm here from the day I could walk I was involved with the farm with dad and my grandfather um, and yeah just was determined to come back after my accident to do some sort of farming and I just decided I was going to start a stud. So can we talk about the accident? What actually happened? Yeah, so I was at Tatiara Seeds working there and they had a bagging machine that knocked me down and crushed my spine quite high up at C4-5, which the doctors sort of said is sort of Christopher Reed level of movement. Um, luckily I've got one one arm that I can move around so I use that for mostly computer work and driving wheelchair around the farm. How, how do you get on with the wheelchair around the farm? Do you ever get bogged? Uh, yes, during the summertime when it's quite dry um, we sort of run a sandy clay base around here so I've got to be careful where I drive sometimes. Is that the only impediment that you can see? Uh, yeah, they did say, you know, I could have brain damage, but luckily that seems to be no different to before. So, yeah, I can still think and operate computer, phone, make decisions and 
all that sort of stuff and organised workers. So, yeah. Do you see your sheep every day? Not every day. Some days when it's really wet and cold, I won't check them. With them being close to the house, I just trundle over. Um, got laneways, rubble laneways that I can drive on so I don't have to go into the grass and into the paddock. Do you think you would have gone down this particular agricultural path if it hadn't been for the accident that has left you in the chair? Uh, probably not. I would have probably just gone stayed commercial like my father was um probably inherited the merino sheep from him and bought the farm off my parents but yeah probably wouldn't have gone down the stud road and was that something that you were thinking about while you were in hospital going through the rehabilitation and the recuperation were you thinking then okay what am I going to do with my life because the doctors had told me I may not get home I was determined to get back here yeah the stud just sort of come along out of the blue it was just I'm going to give it a go and see what happens so well what happens is we've got a lot of little lambs here behind us that are desperate to get back to their mums when you look at them and you think about how far you've come what's the feeling then oh it's an achievement in such a short time I've grown it so big if you'd probably asked me three years ago I'll wouldn't have thought I'd be having an on-property auction. I'd still be selling them privately, but the way it's gone, I'm now holding on-property auction. I've expanded to buy a, and bought a rostrum and a selling ring. I sort of maybe thinking probably 10 years down the track. Um, so, yeah, some goals have been achieved quicker and some are still taking their time. But, yeah, it's surprising how quickly things can change. That's Farmer Stuart Stoudy from Watertown speaking there with Karen Hunt. Still to come on the country, we'll meet the new president of Wool Producers Australia and check what sort of weather is coming up for the rest of the week. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Tasmania's largest not-for-profit aged care provider says it'll make a number of major changes at its facilities, including employing chefs to make fresh food on site. Southern Cross Care operates nine residential care facilities across the state. Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has encouraged Tasmanians to maintain COVID-safe behaviours but wouldn't say whether mask mandates will be reintroduced. Royal Hobart Hospital staff are using eye protection, N95 masks and more personal protective equipment as COVID cases surge. The hospital has 13 patients with two on ventilators in intensive care and 40 staff members off work with the virus. The New South Wales State Emergency Service says substantial flash flooding is occurring in Ugara in the central west with a large number of rescues already carried out. The SES has issued an emergency order for the town and surrounding areas to move to higher grounds with conditions too unsafe to evacuate and Victorian emergency crews are continuing to respond to calls for assistance after heavy rain and thunderstorms caused flash flooding across that state. More at one. Now more on the weather with Michael Conway from the Bureau. G'day Michael, how are you? G'day Tony, yeah doing well thanks. And there's definitely been some rainfall? Yeah, there has uh, the there's widespread falls of 15 to 40 millimetres about the north and the east tonight and this morning. The highest was at Wynyard and St Helens, and they reached they got 49 millimetres in the gauge. Pine Garner and Upper Esk were the, were the next in the line. They got 48 millimetres. So quite a quite a few uh, good falls. There was a lot of falls elsewhere about the state, mostly around the five to ten millimetre sort of a range. Since 9 a.m., there's been um, 
continuing rainfall, especially around in the around Launceston and into the northeast, uh, across to say uh, St Helens, there that sort of area. Um, Deddington had has had 13 millimeters since 9 a.m. and Mount Morriston's had 12. Friendly Beaches has chimed in with 11 millimeters. Okay, um, how long will the rain last? What's uh, what's ahead of us the next few days? Yeah, sure. So the um, there's a little low over Bass Strait that's going to move off towards the southeast today, and that'll that'll take the rain away mostly from the northeast. But as it goes, the southwesterly winds will pick up along the west coast. So tonight, the the, the moderate falls will be expected around the west coast, and then unfortunately, they're, they're well not that bad, but I shouldn't say unfortunately, but there's another trough that comes through into the southeast of the state tomorrow morning, and that'll enhance rainfall. Excuse me, enhance rainfall about the southeast and the east coast during the day. So it'll start in the southeast and then move up the east coast. Uh, could be some um, wind gusts along the far eastern coastal fringe, so Tasman Island along Murrah Island there, around the. Um, 80 kilometer an hour, maybe a bit slightly more. So um, uh, it, it's going to cause a fair bit of weather. There will, the interesting thing is it's coming with a fair bit of cold air. So tomorrow is looking like a very uh, wintry day with ma- minimum uh, maximums looking around like, for instance, Hobart's looking like 11 degrees tomorrow, um, which is astounding since we, we were in the high 20s just not too long ago. Uh, and um, there'll be snow around. It looks like there quite a good dump of snow will be coming with this system. So Canyon uh, um, Mount Wellington will be pretty, pretty could be pretty white tomorrow morning. Gee, eleven degrees. That's uh, <laughs> nice and nippy. Uh, after that, what's uh, what's the scenario? Yeah, sure. So I, I didn't say before, it's snowed down to about 600 metres through the south and the southeast uh, tomorrow. Uh, yeah, so that that trough will move up the coast tomorrow. Um, there, um, it will move off the coast towards the east uh, tomorrow night. And then after that, we'll gradually it'll gradually improve into Wednesday and the end of the week is looking quite nice with warmer weather, warm um, temperatures around 20 degrees for maximums pretty much statewide. Uh, so that'll be nice towards the end of the week. A few showers coming in the next weekend, but too far away. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, what about warnings? There would be some around, I'm assuming. Yeah, so it's a bit windy. Today, there's gale warnings for central north, east of Flinders, lower east, strong warnings for all other waters, as well as Storm Bay, Frederick Henry, Norfolk Bay, and the Channel. For tomorrow, we've got gale warnings for western waters from South East Cape to Stan- Sandy Cape, so southwest and central west. Strong wind warning for everywhere else, as well as all the southeast inshore waters. There's a moderate flood warning for the Macquarie and South Esk rivers, minor for the Meander and North Esks at the moment. Flood watch for the northwest, north and northeast catchments. Sheep graziers warning for King Island, northwest coast, east coast, upper Derwent Valley and southeast forecast districts. There's also a bushwalkers alert for tomorrow for western and central plateau parts. The, um, there will also be more product, more flood products put out this afternoon, so more flood watches for the southeast and east. They just haven't come out yet because it's all a very fairly new thing and uh, likely put out some uh, flood warnings as well for, for rivers around the southeast and east. So that, if that's of concern, please stay tuned. Okay. You wouldn't know we're two weeks away from summer, would you? <laughs> oh, that's just a, that's just dark humour there. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, coastal waters and swell, what's happening out there? Yeah, so 
as far as winds go, it's, uh, we've got west to southwesterlies at today at 20 to 30 knots, reaching 35 knots in the north and low east. And um, the winds tomorrow, west to southwesterlies at 15 to 20 knots, about the upper east. Otherwise, south to southwesterlies everywhere else, 20 to 30 knots, reaching 35 knots in the central west and southwest. Um, uh, yeah, and the swell's about today set in the west and south. Southwesterly is about three metres, increasing to four metres late. In the um, and tomorrow in the west and south, southwesterly is at increasing up to four to six metres. In the north, there's a westerly at around one metre both days. Uh, northeasterly today, just below one metre, and then petering out tonight. In the east, there's a northeasterly swell today, one to one, one and a half to two metres. There's also a southerly at around a metre, increasing to one to two metres offshore in the south. Tomorrow, a southerly in the east at one to two metres, tending three to four metres offshore in the south. And there's also a northeasterly at one to one and a half metres. The, um, I was just reading that out and I was thinking to myself, tomorrow the, um, the winds may be increasing about the the southeast and the upper and um, along the east coast to, to gale. So, so that could be an amendment that will be coming later on. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for all of that. Thank you, Tony. Have See, a good day. You too. <laughs> Michael Conway from the Bureau with all that information for you. A couple of uh, texts from Andrew and Cunha. says, hey, Tony, I come from Hayfield in Gippsland, and this has been going on since the early 2000s. The mill I worked at shut down. Logging was being decreased. People made plans and got out of the loggers. They can go into construction where there is a shortage, and they can stop saying, poor me. Thank you for that, Andrew. And also, uh, Jay, I think I pronounced that right, J-A-E, uh, says, Happy birthday to our royal patron of organic farming, King Charles. Yes, King Charles's birthday today, the first time he's had a birthday as a king. What do you give a king for his birthday? Uh, maybe maybe some wool. He's, uh, he's well into sheep, isn't he? He loves the wool. We'll talk about the wool market in just a moment. Say hello to Peppa Pig and her friends from ABC Hobart. Look out for the giant inflatable ABC giving tree in the Hobart Christmas pageant as we join in on the Christmas spirit. With 40 floats and over a 1,000 participants, it'll be a pageant to remember. Of course, a Christmas parade wouldn't be the same without the big fella in red. So look out for Santa too. Join Peppa Pig, Santa and your ABC Hobart team this Saturday from 10.30 on the streets of Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Talking about giving, giving gifts, the Giving Tree Appeal is open now. ABC Giving Tree Appeal is the place to go online. You can make a a donation online. Doesn't matter how little or how big, every little bit helps. So go to it. Make sure you do that today. Take a couple of minutes to uh, to head online. ABC Rural, or ABC Giving Tree, at least online. <laughs> you can go to ABC Rural as well. Why not? And uh, make a donation. Well, growing the wool market, rolling out electronic ear tags and improving the relationship with Australian wool innovation are high on the agenda for the new president of the lobby group representing the Australian wool industry. Farmer Steve Harrison has taken over at Wool Producers Australia after the previous president, Ed Storey, reached a four-year cap on his time in the role. It's a position that's been difficult and highly politicised in the past, but Mr Harrison tells Warwick Long things are better now and the industry is ready to pull in the same direction. We've come a long way in the industry and a lot of it is um, thanks to um, Ed Storey and Richard Halliday before that. 
you know, unfortunately, the industry is pretty small now. I think it's only 0.6, 0.7 off the apparel market. So, you know, the days of 180 million sheep and all the rest of it, um, we're that small. We've all got to work together now. It's that simple. Is there anything in particular you want to see the wool industry doing now? You're effectively the the voice of one of its major lobby groups. Uh, look, traceability is a big thing going forward for wool and obviously for sheep and lambs and goats. Um, so they're probably the two main things uh, at at this point of time. Um, we've got the Indian Free Trade Agreement coming up, and yeah, you know, wool producers are been at the forefront of that uh, as well for wool you know ead preparedness you know the scare and continued threat of fmd again wool, wool producers and others have been at the forefront to um get a way forward so we can get back into our um, trading situations with our other uh, countries you're a victorian producer in a state that was let's say at the forefront of eid programs for sheep uh, the the first to legislate now there's going to be a national movement to to move to compulsory eids for sheep producers do you think your experience will help with those negotiations and also implementation of that decision yes definitely and look the other states um have got the same same concerns that we had as victorians five years ago the benefit now is that you know the template is there um that you know victoria has set up so you know what happens when you know there's fifty thousand sheep and at a yarding well in other states well you know we've been through it with ballarat bendigo and hamilton you know we're, we're 60 70,000 sheep are there and look cattle did it before us you know just one na- national system all harmonized rules the last thing we need is different rules for different states yeah so you would like whatever the rules are to be a national program between all of the states it has to be national and it has to have one database. It has to be harmonised for sure. We've got other states that are procrastinating or um, t- chasing new te- technologies, which is fine. But, you know, at this point of time, uh, Minister Watts suggested uh, January t- 2025. It's not going away. So we have to work towards that um, data, um, fortunately or even unfortunately. But we all have to be on the same page. And as I said, you know, Victoria's um, got the template there. Our, our system may not be perfect, but with the other state's input, we can um, improve it all the time. And yeah, it, it can be improved. There's no doubt. Steve Harrison too, that brings me to the, the next thing to talk about. And that's the relationship between wool producers as a lobby group for the wool industry and the research development and marketing organisation, Australian Wool Innovation, which has certainly in previous years had a, a lot of political pressure placed on it due to its its actions and its dealing with growers. What kind of relationship do you want wool producers to have with AWI? Well, I think in the previous um, you know, four years, um, it has improved. And, you know, um, wool producers were out for dinner with AWI last night. Um, and even last week, yeah, all the industry leaders, AWI, AWEX, AWTA and the processors were all out to um, bid um, Ed Story farewell. So, again, the industry is rather small now. We all have to work together and um, I'll certainly be strengthening our um, relationships um, with AWI. And, you know, <laughs> I've been around a while, I suppose, and um, I certainly know um, a large majority of them. So I'm probably well placed to continue that relationship. New President of Wool Producers Australia, Steve Harrison, speaking there to Warwick Long. Well, how often do you buy something that's made in Australia? The cost of homegrown products compared to imported, usually more expensive and perhaps harder to source. But there are small businesses in the bush working hard to inject their income back into their community to keep small towns running in times of natural disasters. Alex Trelaw has the story. 
I had a lot of feedback. People loved what I was making. I started selling it just, you know, locally, markets and shows and such things, and then went online in 2019, um, and the business absolutely boomed. Kalia Micken runs her preserve company literally in the middle of nowhere. So I focus on gourmet preserves, everything from jams and marmalades and sauces and relishes and chutneys and such thing, um, and we go Australia-wide with it all. The business, I called it Middle of Nowhere Creations, and the Middle of Nowhere came from where we lived. You know, we'd get people here saying, um, they'd, get, they'd arrive here and say, oh man, you live in the middle of nowhere, so <laughs> the seed was sown, so that's what I called it. With the nearest food store 250 kilometres away from her station in northwest Queensland, Kalia can't just pop to the shops for ingredients. She needs to grow as much as she can. So anything that will grow in northwest Queensland, I grow it so like all your basics tomatoes rosellas pawpaws mangoes cape gooseberries dragon fruits mulberries citrus chilies you know all those things chocos all those things that that grow really really well that i can grow in bulk and with the demand increasing for our products and a cattle station to run Kalia's days are full. We, we've got quite a few businesses. So we've got our cattle to start with and then I've got my gourmet preserves and we've got um, earth-moving earth machines and self-storage and a few different things like that. So um, our days are full. <laughs> we don't have a set a set routine. We just get up and get into what, what needs our attention. Kalia is one of thousands of women across rural Australia running a small business from a remote area. It's tough work, but that doesn't stop her. And like as most people know, as soon as it rains, well, the mail service cuts out, you know, that don't get a lot of service when there's wet roads, obviously. So I do have a note on my website so all my customers can see that. I do explain where we are and and that side of the you know that, that side of the postage story, so they understand that if it is a bit longer than what they expected, then they can you know sort of get a picture as to why. Kalia says she's had a lot of criticism for running her business from a remote station, but she's learnt to ignore it. Yeah, we face a lot of pushback. Um, just. Just people, they, they just couldn't understand. They couldn't grasp that. Well, I guess it's a few things like the logistics and the, and the, and the hard work. Like it's it's not not an easy thing that we do, you know, with the, with the preserves and that. And people just don't understand the, the the background of it, and it's just simply a misunderstanding. It's, it's that lack of understanding that Buy from the Bush founder Grace Brennan is trying to change. We have this lovely community of people who care about what we're going through in rural communities, and we want to, I suppose, paint a more nuanced and honest picture of what modern rural communities look like and what it takes to run a small business in the bush. Born in 2019, Buy From The Bush started as a campaign to encourage more people to support regional-based small businesses during the height of the drought. It took off quickly, increasing revenue by $5 million in the first four months of operation. But since then, the country has been inundated with natural disasters and an increase in the cost of living. In these small communities in rural Australia, when there is a crisis like we have at the moment with flood-affected communities or drought-affected communities, bushfires, often local cash flow dries up and we need to look elsewhere. And those digital tools and online tools, e-commerce and other industries can really help um, hold those communities up and keep cash flow flowing. Miss Brennan says it's more important than ever to support these businesses who already face challenges. The only way I think we can compete is by telling that big picture story and asking people to invest because we can't promise cheaper, we can't necessarily promise um, more convenient overnight shipping, but what, what we can promise is their purchase will do good for Australia. Founder of Buy From The Bush, Grace Brennan, ending that story from Alex Trelaw.
on the country hour. Australia's red meat processing sector is short of as many as 10,000 workers. At a recent innovation showcase in Melbourne, a range of robotic and exoskeleton devices were on display. Chris Taylor, the CEO of Australian Meat Processor Corporation, the sector's research and development body, has told Landline's Pip Courtney he's confident robots will soon be able to fill the labour gap. I would say labour probably is the biggest challenge that the industry is facing. I don't think there's any question of that. The solutions come in a range of different forms, I guess, um, whether they're safety devices such as the exoskeletons, whether it's the shadow robotics which, which help with the hands-off processing aspect, whether it's virtual reality training, so helping to actually train people up in an environment where they're actually exposed to some of the harms that they might be in an operating environment. They can actually learn and test new things in a virtual reality world where they're safe and and can learn. I'd say the processing industry has been resistant to change, uh, but I get the sense that we're at a bit of a tipping point at the moment. And we can see in different types of technologies that have been developed recently, that time to adoption is really shortening rapidly. Uh, Historically, things like bandsaw safety equipment, for example, we're talking about 15 years of development uh, in that type of technology. But more recent uh, meat quality sensing technologies are only one or two years from concept to adoption. And so I think we're at a time now where the processing sector is really on the ball and able to rapidly adopt and you know, reap the benefits from those technologies. Now Spot the Dog is a big hit. Is he a gimmick or is he actually an indicator of what's to come? It's really important as an RDC that we experiment on a couple of different things, right? So we have a balanced portfolio, some things that are sure winners and some things that are a bit experimental. And and Spot probably falls into that experimental category where we're we're having an experiment to see what might happen. We saw some videos today of Spot in another industry uh, making inspections in a manufacturing facility, doing inspections that might not be safe for a human to go and do. So we think there are some applications uh, where, you know, there may be some, some value for him. Could you just sort of give us a feel for how many might be, how many things might be getting trialled all around Australia? AMPC's portfolio at the moment consists of around 300 projects. About half of those are directly undertaken in processing plants. So that's a that's a pretty clear indication that there's strong involvement from the sector. I was at an abattoir a couple of weeks ago in central Queensland and they said they're near Moranbar. A vet has to fly in to be there on kill days. If the vet doesn't turn up or if the flight is cancelled, they have to reschedule anything and they were hoping that Google Glasses would help. Is VR a great opportunity to save the industry a lot on these sorts of costs? I think any opportunity to get a vet or a meat inspector on plan to do what needs to be done is really important. There's obviously a regulatory framework that, that sits around that and it's really important, you know, those activities underpin our market access requirements and ensure that we all end up with, you know, safe and healthy food on the table. The virtual reality and augmented reality uh, technologies uh, are definitely an opportunity. It's something that we've been investing in at AMPC for the last two years and those investigations are ongoing at the moment, but very promising in terms of the technology potentially working. I mean, the potential is we're not talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings, are we? We're talking millions. Absolutely. We will be talking about millions. The real win out of those types of technologies is the opportunity to have uptime. Uh, and that's really important in processing plans. If a vet can't turn up, then production has to halt. And that's just not, uh, not viable for most processes. What other pinch points in the processing industry can tech in this room fix? I think that sustainability aspect is something that's growing And it's not just around emissions, it's around water and it's around waste and it's also about communities and those interactions. So I think that's another aspect that requires intervention and really proud to see we've got a good portfolio addressing those issues. And if we come back in five years' time, what are the chances that half of this tech would have been adopted, 20%? 
because I do lots of stories on the next big thing that 10 years later they just died a quiet death. Yeah. I think the, the really exciting thing is that everything in the room here today is pretty much ready for adoption. Chris Taylor, CEO of Australian Meat Processor Corporation, talking there to Landline's Pip Courtney. And you can see the exoskeleton, spot the dog and shadow robots and other high-tech solutions on Landline on iView anytime. Well, Elders Managing Director Mark Allison has announced he'll leave the role by this time next year, 10 years after he took over the job. The news comes as the agribusiness company reports a 9% increase in profit to $163 million. Mr Allison reflects on his time at the helm of the company. It doesn't feel like 10 years, but uh, that may be a sign of growing older. Uh, so uh, I think you know, when I came into Elders uh, and when I became chairman, uh, we were still in uh, bad bank. I think uh, market capitalisation was around $50 million. And, uh, you know, we uh, developed the eight-point plan and we basically just did it ourselves. And we went back to being a core pure play agribusiness. And I think uh, as we go through that period, you know, we finished... Uh, Today we're, we're sitting at about $2 billion market cap, so there's been a very strong um, uh, shareholder uh, benefit. 2016, uh, after we came out of uh, Bad Bank and we started to get back on our feet, we started paying dividends again, so, so we're a, a, an investor-grade stock now. 2016, at the end of that period, uh, the business won the uh, large company turnover of the year, which is great. But I think when I look at the, the things I'm most proud of, it's seeing elders people being able to... Uh, contribute back into regional rural Australia, supporting local communities, funding uh, you know, sports organisations in local communities, investing in ag tech to help agriculture. And uh, you know, we've been the most trusted brand in agriculture for the last three years. And, uh, and that, you know, 183 years later, that's, that's quite an important uh, uh, part of our DNA and what we actually do. So um, from my sense, it's, it's actually seeing us being able to be equipped to look after our local uh, communities, our elders people. The shareholders have clearly done very, very well through the period. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, we're set for growth now into the future. Elders shares were worth 28 cents uh, today, but uh, it seems they've not taken to your, your, your announcement that you're leaving terribly well with uh, the share price dropping just today. Uh, I think it's, a, it's like everything we do, though. It's, it's, you know, it's core to the Aikman plan. Low pulse rate, methodical, be calm. It's a long game we're playing. And if anyone who's in regional rural Australia or in agriculture doesn't play a long game, uh, they're, they're bound to be disappointed. There has been some excellent profit this year. You're up for 9% after tax to $163 million. What's driven that? So I think the strategy is this season, you know, from the market, when we look at how much of our upside comes out of better seasonal conditions, uh, our, our analysis shows us about 47% and 53%. So the um, 53% came out of our self-help and things we can control. And we tend to kind of work on the things we can control, not what comes out of the sky or commodity prices or, or wars in Ukraine, etc. There's a fairly healthy margin, though, that's, that's been required to, to achieve those, those profits at a time when, when inputs are costing an increasing amount. Uh, to have a, a profit before tax of 42% and a profit after tax of 9%, uh, costs a concern? So our cost to serve has uh, reduced during this period. So uh, because we've been growing at a faster rate, obviously, than the, well, we're putting costs in. But, but it's something we... Uh, costs uh, in terms of running costs, uh, we watch very closely. In terms of the costs of fertiliser, crop protection, animal health, I mean, largely, we, we don't manufacture them. So we buy at the high cost, 
and then uh, and then we sell. Our margin, particularly for some of the crop protection products, has reduced uh, because uh, you know, it's a competitive market, so, so we can't just mark up any price we want to. It, it, it'll depend what competitors are, are, uh, are selling for and what the market price is. So, so yeah, I think uh, by backward integrating, we've been able to get a little bit more of the margin, but it's still been very, very tight. And, and our, the drop in our cash conversion was around the increased costs of uh, uh, big parts of our inventory. Is there a point where the market won't be able to afford much more? Is, is you, the margin is is already slimming, as you've said there. Is there going to become a cap where the, the market can't accept any more price rises? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the outlook for uh, fertiliser prices is, is uh, a little different. I think for crop protection, it looks like it's uh, it's uh, softening. So supply-demand means prices uh, are softening, which is great for everyone. But, but I, I think that the way, you know, just from... Uh, been around for a little while. What I've seen is that if, if particularly if, if it's crop and there's high returns by putting the crop in, if if they're high commodity prices and high input prices, it's kind of okay because you're investing more to get more. Uh, the problem is, and that's the current scenario. That's that's the current scenario. If there are high input prices and low commodity prices, you send, tend to get a um, a reduction of inputs. So I think it depends on the. Uh, Depends on the market, but, but from our view, you know, from my viewpoint, I mean, we, we would uh, we, we support regional rural Australia. We do our best to keep uh, prices as low as possible. It costs us much more. You know, we pass it on as much as per with the competitive situation, and uh, we do our best to have products available for uh, people so they can, they can plant or whatever, or spray pests or fungal, fungal activity or whatever. You made a big investment in wool handling this year. What was that, and why? We've moved to a. Uh, uh, an automated uh, wool handling facility for uh, for uh, Eastern Australia and also uh, with less technology in Western Australia. And our thinking there is that yeah, it's a $25 million investment. And again, wool is core DNA for elders uh, and uh, no one's invested in uh, in wool for many, many years. But, but our thinking is that this is our core business, these are our core clients, and uh, we believe we can add significant efficiency to the supply chain through that investment a recession could be on the cards, though. The GFC almost bankrupted elders. How will elders ride out a potential economic downturn if that does come to pass, if this, this war does continue, for example? Yeah, well, it's a completely different business to the elders that got caught in the GFC. So in terms of debt, like where our leverage is 1.2, we've got massive headroom. We're generating, generating yeah, hundreds of millions of uh, cash. Uh, we, I mean, we, we've, one of the hallmarks of the last... Uh, nine years with the Apple plan is financial discipline, not overextending, not getting caught, not doing things that don't fit the core pure play agribusiness strategy. So there is a high degree of discipline that we've uh, introduced. So, so I think, uh, yeah, we're we're a long way from anywhere close to having a distressed balance sheet or. That's Elders Managing Director Mark Allison speaking to Cassie Huff. Revenue surged 35% to $3.45 billion and the company announced a 9% increase in profit of $163 million. And uh, for you, Tip Rat out at Bell Reeve, uh, the score at the moment, uh, New South Wales, 4 for 74. In reply to Tassie's 333. ABC Rural Online is where you'll see some great stories, lovely story uh, about the rose grower in the north of the state, some fabulous photos from Larissa Smith's story, and also a story about uh, the problems in the supermarkets with the supply chain as well on ABC Rural Online. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.